0: Please be seated. In nineteen ninety-six, <clears throat> pardon me, social activist and theologian Ched Myers published a book called Say to This Mountain: Mark's Story of Discipleship, and in it we find some very helpful insights some of which have to do with the gospel writers' use of apocalyptic references, both explicit and implied, and what they may have to do with discipleship. Apocalyptic references in scripture are often seen as the language of political dissent, colorful descriptions of the end of the world, that is, the end of a world ruled by powers and principalities. What, then, are we to suppose the world could look like? A world that isn't ruled by powers and principalities? A question worth exploring. In today's Gospel story, immediately following his baptism, Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he winds up struggling with the ruler of this world. This is often seen as symbolizing the war between good and evil. Jesus and the angels representing good, and Satan and the poor misunderstood wild beasts representing evil. But what's also interesting is that it's the first point on the graph of Mark's repeated references to the book of Daniel. And why Daniel? Because Daniel is a masterful Jewish apocalyptic treatise on resisting Hellenism. Hellenism, the birthplace of extraordinary developments in thought as well as art and architecture, but also truly objectionable in the story of salvation for the imperial subjugation it so violently foisted upon all the world it could get its hands on. Not entirely unlike Mark's Rome. The Daniel text was produced at least two centuries before the time of Mark, and some would say even hundreds of years before that. Nonetheless, in both instances, in both the time frames of Daniel and Mark, apocalyptic imagery was very effectively used to run commentary on politics and power. And that's worth noticing. Not the politics so much, but the way the resonances of apocalypse we find in Scripture connect with one another. Because I think these connections can lead us here in the 21st century to some clarity about this business of redeeming the world. And you know what else is helpful is how what Jesus is doing in the desert takes on a new texture when, as means of noticing connections, we review some of the foundations of the story of salvation, especially as author Brian Zand sketches them out in his 2017 book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Check this out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth light, water, land, plants and trees, fish, birds and beasts. Finally, beings to bear the image of God. A man called humankind and a woman called life. It was all very good until it all went wrong. There was a temptation, A transgression, an expulsion from paradise, a flaming sword to block the way home, thorns and thistles, struggle and sorrow, dust to dust, death. Yet life goes on. Humankind and life had two sons, Cain, the tiller of the ground, and Abel, the keeper of the sheep. As the agrarian and the nomadic came into conflict, the farmer killed the shepherd, lied to God about it, moved east of Eden, and founded the first city. The violence unleashed by Cain became 70 times 7 more violent in the days of Lamech and completely out of control by the time of Noah. In an attempt to solve the problem of exponential violence, God intervened with God-violence, salvation by tsunami, human violence washed away by a divine deluge, a flood from which only eight survived, problem solved. Except it wasn't solved. Not long after the dove offered the olive branch, the foundations of Babylon were laid in the land of Shinar, God's attempt to solve the problem of violence by violence did not work. So God began a new plan and called to the son of Terah, enter Abraham. The redemption of the world would not come by the eradication of evil people, but through the propagation of a faithful family. By faith, Abraham would father a son and spend the rest of his life searching for a city whose builder and maker is God. The redemption of the world would not come by the eradication of evil people, but through the propagation of a faithful family. First off, how does this strike you? Do you believe this? And if you do, what does the world look like? How do we get there? The story of Cain and Abel begins a short, dramatic, and very essential arc in which God is caught up in an intense swirl of violence that culminates in the flood. Cain's descendants had advanced and refined levels of retribution and punishment. Think Code of Hammurabi, the very first law. And that somehow drew God in until God broke out in a massive attempt to drive out violence by using violence. Unimaginably horrific reciprocal destruction as even God became subject to this disease. By the end of Noah's story, we see how responding to the problem of human violence with greater and greater violence has been tried by both humans and God and is found undeniably wanting. Now, imagine you are Jesus. Knowing how deeply ingrained this disease of violence is in the human story, knowing how insidious and relentless a part of human nature it is, how would you teach redeeming the world? if the redemption of the world will not come by the eradication of evil people, but through the propagation of a faithful family. What would that mean to wilderness Jesus? He's human, and while it may be tempting for us to give him a pass and sort of shrugging, attribute everything about his goodness to the godly part of him, I feel like that would be giving short shrift to the discernment of how a human being might take part in redeeming the world. No, I think the fully human and fully divine Jesus in this wilderness experience is entirely aware of how punishment and consequences are a given. So much a perverse comfort to human beings. Jesus knows this, and his God nature? Much of his struggle in the wilderness may well have to do with the God promise to Noah, the rainbow promise, the I'll never do it again promise. Also something at the very foundation of the salvation story. Indeed, it is the essential ingredient in the kind of human forgiveness that begets trust building. Seriously, if we are to believe that the God who commands humans to love God and to love neighbor and self is subject to the same standard we are in this covenantal relationship, then we must believe that it is also God's intention to remain free of the risk of being drawn again into meeting violence with violence in the way that brought the flood. The flood then, as a vehicle, For revealing the ultimacy of violence being met with violence as being wanting. Being always and everywhere not who God is. And correspondingly not who we are when we are at our best. The flood story had many lives, with the Sumerians and Babylonians especially. But it wasn't until the Hebrews we find God repenting making a promise never to destroy all flesh again, making a rainbow, making a covenant, the kind of covenant that paves the way for a Messiah who would suffer violence rather than ever resorting to it. So maybe wilderness Jesus is working his way through all of what is connected to physical violence among humans, all of what leads to it, and perhaps even more, all of what follows it. Considering the teachings that follow this wilderness experience, it's entirely possible nonviolence was a major issue on Jesus' mind in the desert. The 40 days, the vision quest, the classic interior adventure of cleansing and self-reflection that takes place outside the bounds of society, the journey in spirit, the journey of both identity and destiny made by reliving the past experience of the people of God in order to uncover the root causes of the problems of God's people, that is, the problems of the world. A journey of identity and destiny sounds a lot like a human life, each one's identity, when the destiny is a world that is not and probably never will be devoid of evil and violence and yet so wants to be a world that is not ruled by them. That's a lot. It can get pretty overwhelming because this really could be one of the biggest existential existential questions facing the world, not just today, but going back all the way through time to Noah. A moment ago, I asked you to imagine you are Jesus. I want to flip that now and ask you to imagine Jesus in the wilderness, imagining he is you. Trying to figure out how a human being can live into this question of redeeming the world. He's had this existential download at his baptism and dashes off to the desert to relive the past of all humanity, which has got to be pretty overwhelming. And he uses this downtime to recalibrate, to get into closer alignment with the God intention, the intention he was part of making after the flood, the intention never to meet violence with violence. Knowing all the pitfalls of thought and feeling that result when a human being chooses nonviolence, Jesus goes off to be quiet, to get still, to allow the noise and the whirlwind of energies that are simply the engine of physical existence to settle. He avails himself of a process that is itself the province that is literally at the command of just about every human being who is and ever was. He enters into salvation, the kingdom of heaven that is within, the essential nature of the human being. In an effort to get to that quiet place in spirit, he may well have recognized a universal truth that when the spirit is troubled, it's like a glass of muddy water. And one when one simply gets still and just breathes, that very act allows the mud to settle and things to begin to look clearer. All of what distracts us from our collective desire to reach a place of clarity, and distractions will always continue to come at us, But with this practice of stillness, they soon begin to drift by without engagement. And anything like a troubled spirit comes to a place of more restfulness. And this, this place of peace, is the very place from which much good may flow, even nonviolent redemption of the world. This is the first time Jesus does this this getting away from it all. He will do it more and more as the story of salvation progresses. Maybe you will too. And throughout this season of Lent, find new freshness and unclutteredness in mind and heart. And that has a very good chance of becoming quite sustaining as the story of salvation in 2024 progresses.